Uh, about three weeks ago, we started a new sermon series, which is titled Five Words That Will Change Your Life. And so each week, we're looking at one word that has the capacity, if we put it into practice, to change our lives. And we started with this premise, this idea that everybody the whole world over has a common set of desires, that all of us want to feel love, that all of us want to be in a relationship, that all of us want to have significance in life. And if we live these five words out, it will get us to that place in life that we want to be. And so this morning, we are on week three of this series. The first week, we talked about the word no. And we talked about how when we can say no to things, it's a scalpel that kind of points us to the things that God wants us to do, that our lives can become so over busy, so over full, so overspent that we miss out on what God has for us. And then last week, we talked about the word yes, and that we say yes to what God wants for us in terms of obedience, but also we spend a little bit of time talking about the promptings of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit prompts us, and we say yes to the Holy Spirit, and we get all these great interactions with people and hearing from God and so forth. And so we talked about that last week. This morning, we're going to talk about the word help. It's the simple word help. And so we're going to be in John chapter 4. So if you brought your Bible, open up to John chapter 4. Now, before we jump into the, to this, I want to talk about a phrase that, that at least somewhat common um, and you'll understand it, but it's this phrase of perception management or image management. It's whenever we project an image of ourselves to other people that is different and usually better than who we actually are. That we project an image, there's stuff going on inside of us, but we project an image to other people that's different. And, you know, with Facebook, that's sort of what Facebook is about. And so this week I changed my Facebook po uh, profile, I changed it to this right? Don't I look happy there? Right? Thank you. Yeah. And so the thing is, I, I just changed it because I, I needed to change it um, and because I had a logo up there before. And I got something like 125 likes and a bunch of comments. And I was very surprised how many people liked my profile change thing. But here's the thing about that. Like, do I look happy there? I mean, I'm, I'm exceedingly happy in that, in that picture. Um, but like, I'm not always happy. Like, if, I, if you were to take a picture of me yesterday sitting in South Charleston traffic, it would have been an angry face is what you would have found. It would not have been this happy face. But that's the image that I project. I'm happy. I'm always happy. Look at my Facebook profile. I'm happy, right? And, you know, people have been doing image management since way before social media. Like, it just happens to make it easier to project an image of how we want people to see our lives now that we have Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all that kind of stuff. But people have been projecting an image better than themselves for a long, long time. Think about this. Think about when you went on a first date, right? Or if you're still hoping to get a first date, right? So, but think about when you went on a first date, and what did you talk about, right? Didn't you put your best foot forward? You talked about the fun stuff that you did. You told some of the best jokes that you know. You talked about how awesome this was or that was. You asked good questions, right? We put our best foot forward when we go on a first date, right? But when you go on a first date, does anybody talk about how you just wrecked your last relationship because you were so prideful, right, and stubborn? You know, do you talk about how in your last relationship your mom meddled in everything and it just blew the relationship up? No, we leave that stuff behind. We, we put our best foot forward. That's image management, trying to project an image of ourselves that's a little bit or a lot better 
than we actually are. Or how about when it comes to business uh, meetings and so forth, and business proposals? If you're in a, in a line of business where you have to make proposals and pitches, you know, you put your best foot forward. You talk about all the great stuff that you've done and your company has done in the past. You don't talk about the deal that fell apart. You don't talk about how you really blew this or how you ticked off that client. You put your best foot forward. One of the things that, that I do um, is I coach tennis at the University of Charleston. And so I get thousands of emails a year about people saying, I want to come to the University of Charleston and play tennis. And it's not like they really want to come to Charleston. It's just they send it to you know, hundreds of teams or hundreds of coaches. So, But one of the interesting things is, is they send these videos, right? And it's them playing, you know, hitting forehands and backhands and volleys and points. Uh, and in these videos, they lose very few points. Like, I think they edit out all the points that they lose. Uh, but they're always sort of putting their best foot forward. They're saying, you know, I've got a great serve and a really consistent forehand, and, you know, I, tr- and I work really hard all the time. But never have I gotten a, uh, a video or never have I gotten a, uh, a conversation with a kid you know, and he talks about how he, he chokes under pressure. Like, when the game gets tight, I always double fault. Like, nobody ever puts that. But, like, it seems like half the guys on my team, when they get under pressure, they choke and double fault, right? But they project one image when something else is actually there. That's kind of the way that life is. And, and, and in a sense, that's okay. That that's how life is. But here's the problem that I see, is that we bring image management, we bring perception management into the church and into our key relationships. And so what happens is because we do it out there on Facebook and all these other places, we come in here to the church and we project an image of ourselves that's better than actually we are. That spiritually we want to project an image that I've got everything together. You know, we'll say something like, hey, I'll pray for you. But we don't really pray all that often and we don't remember to pray for that. We say, hey, man, I go to church, I believe in God, but there isn't a whole lot that we're doing outside of that because we just feel a bit of a distance from God unless we're maybe in church. You know, and there's these different things that we do where we struggle with what's going on inside. You know, maybe you're here this morning or maybe this has happened to you where there's just there's kind of a crisis of faith going on inside. There's a bunch of doubt. There's a bunch of, is God really going to take care of this? And we have all these things that go on in us, but what we do is we project an image that, hey, everything is all right. Everything is okay in my life. You know, I brought an illustration with me, um, which is a mask, right? And, and I, I need to first admit this. Right, so this is a great idea that sort of doesn't work entirely, so you've got to play along with me here, okay? So I, I wanted to put a mask on that represents sort of the happy face, like the face that you saw me on, on the screen there. But I ordered it from Amazon, and it's really more creepy than it is happy, right? You know, like, you know, but I, I wasn't quick enough to rewrite the message to go, put on your creepy face. I just, I don't know how that works. So, but when I hold the mask up to my face, you just have to assume that it's a happy, smiling person and not really wacky, creepy. Got that? So, but what we do is that life doesn't go well, and so we put on a mask, a happy face, and project this to the people in our church, the people around us. Hey, things are okay. The marriage is okay. I love my kids. It's all going great, you know. But inside, we're dying. Inside, we're struggling. And so this morning, we're going to talk about 
What does it look like? How do we take the mask off so that we can show people what's really going on and so we can get real help in our lives? So turn to John chapter 4, if you haven't turned there already. John chapter 4. And you can open up the Bible app on the River Ridge app if you want or um, paper Bible or it'll be on the screen behind me. So we're in John chapter 4. And let me pray for us as we look into God's word. God, I pray that as we look into your word this morning, that it would come alive, that we would understand this woman and we would understand Jesus. But most importantly, it would be an opportunity to be a mirror to look at our own lives and what are our lives about and where are we in relationship to you, in relationship to people, in relationship to wanting help and allowing people in. Help us to see that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So it begins like this in John chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 4. It says, And Jesus had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Now I want to stop right there for a second and point something out. This is written by John, so he's trying to communicate some things to the people who are reading this. And he has sort of a big flag of communication, but most of us miss it because we don't live in this culture. But I want you to see what it is. It says, he had to pass through Samaria. It says he had to go that way. And that would be a big flag if you lived in that culture because nobody had to go through Samaria. Nobody wanted to go through Samaria. They would avoid going through Samaria as much as they could because there was a kind of a just animosity between the Samaritans and the Israelites, between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. They didn't want to go through Samaria. And so nobody ever went through Samaria. But it says, John writes, Jesus had to go through Samaria. And if you were reading that the very first time, you go, why would anyone have to go through Samaria? He says he had to go because, and we'll see this as the story unfolds, but God had a divine appointment for him. That God had something, the Father had something for Jesus in Samaria. Last week we talked about how the Holy Spirit speaks to us and prompts us to do things that might be a little unusual, a little bit different. And when God prompts us, when the Holy Spirit prompts us, we go that direction and we get just these great relationships and these great God moments. And that's what happens with Jesus. He had to go through Samaria says this. It says, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, there's something about this woman that I want us to understand. That this was a woman who was an outcast, and we'll find out in a moment why she was an outcast. But there's some things that are very unusual about this story. First of all, in the town that she lived in, most likely, we don't know for sure, but most likely there was a well that she could have gone to in the town, but she doesn't. She goes to a well far outside of town. The other thing, or the second thing is this, is that she was going in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day. Most women went to the well in the morning because it was cooler, but she goes to the well in the middle of the day. And the third thing is this, is that she went alone. Again, very unusual because women in this culture, they would go to the well that was closest to them and they would all go together and they would go in the morning because it was a social thing. It was work that wasn't terribly fun and so they did it together, kind of in community with one another. And this woman was an outcast. She was ostracized and so she goes to the faraway well by herself 
in the middle of the day so she doesn't have to see anybody. She gets there, and Jesus says, ask her for a drink of water. This is what happens next. Verse 9 says, The woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. He says, why would you ask me? We're so different. But here's Jesus reaching out across cultures, reaching out to this woman who is unloved by so many people, reaching out to her and stepping across. And then what happens in the verses that follow is that they have this conversation about water. And it's kind of an interesting conversation, uh, and you can read it on your own, but I'll summarize it. But basically, they're talking about water, and the woman wants to have this water that's called living water, and she thinks that if she has this water, then she doesn't have to come back to the well anymore and get water. It's sort of like, sort of like for us, it'd be a, a faucet. Like, wow. Like, if she saw a water faucet, you'd be like, that's what I thought what living water was. You turn a spigot on, it comes on. But what Jesus was talking about was living water, was a spiritual water, was, and we'll get into this in a few minutes, but in a terms of a relationship with the living God. So they're speaking a little bit, they're using the same language, but kind of on different planes. And so then here's uh, what happens in verse 15. She hears about this living water, doesn't quite grasp it yet, but says this. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You see, she wants this water. She's tired of coming to this well all by herself. Every day she comes in the heat of the day, by herself, a long walk there, a long walk back with the heavy water, and she doesn't want to do this anymore. And so she says, can I have this water? Because I don't want to come here anymore. It's miserable for my life. It's not what I want my life to be about. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. You see, what this woman did with her first answer, so Jesus says, go call your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And that's true. She doesn't have a husband. But what she's doing is she's putting on a mask. She's trying to project an image of herself to Jesus that is better than she actually is. It's not a bold-faced lie. There is some truth in there, but she's trying to project this image to Jesus. But Jesus kind of calls her on it. He says this. He says, uh, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So the dialogue continues, and they, they talk, and, it, and then it goes to this uh, invitation, verse 23. It says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am him. You see, this woman 
had lived this life of divorce after divorce after divorce. Five divorces, and then she's living with another guy, right? It's a miserable life. We don't know why that happened. Maybe she was just bad at picking husbands. Maybe she was a terrible person, and five guys couldn't live with her anymore. We don't know. But whatever, she, whatever happened, she got to this point where she said, I need to be done with it. And Jesus offers her a relationship with the Father. He talks about worshiping in spirit and in truth, and the Father that people are, spe- are seeking after. And then she says, I want this. I want this. And he says, I am the Messiah. I am the key to what you're looking for in life. And so because she took off her mask, and let Jesus in and had this dialogue instead of running away from the truth when her real self was revealed, her life was changed. And I encourage you to read the rest of the story this afternoon or this evening and read what happens because her life changes, but then it also affects the whole town around her. But I want to stop right there and talk about how this relates to this idea of help. And so in the same way that this woman, she took off her mask and revealed who she really was, We want to be able to do that in our own lives as well. We want to take off the mask, the image that we're projecting, and put it away and let people see what's really going on in our lives. So how do we do that? What does that look like? Well, when we talk about it in the context of a church, taking off our mask is is kind of difficult. And it doesn't happen on a Sunday morning with 750 people. You know, it would be a little bit awkward if we said, okay, we're all going to take off our masks, and uh, we're going to start on this side, and you guys come up here and just speak at the microphone, and you tell us your deepest, darkest secret, what's really going on. Okay, next, next. You know, by the time we got like two rows in, like you guys would be out the door, like we're going to have nothing to do with this, right? We don't take off our masks, you know, in the middle of something like this, but it does happen in the context of the church, and it's what we call ridge groups or small groups. That that type of community where we can take off our masks, when we can be who we really are and be accepted for who we really are, it happens in circles, not in rows. It happens in the context of a living room or a coffee shop. That's where it happens. At River Ridge, we say a lot, one of our core values is you can't do life alone. You can't do life alone. We need other people around us to help us do life. So I want to look back, and I want us to see three things in here that we can take from this uh, story of Jesus and our interaction with this woman about how is it that we can do life together? How is it that we can ask each other for help and let other people help us as we take off our masks? The first one is this, is admit our failures, faults, and struggles. Admit our failures, faults, and struggles. You know, back in verse 15, she says to Jesus, she says, where can I find this living water? She's saying, I don't have my life all together. I don't want to live the way that I'm living. I need you to help me to find this living water. She admits her need to Jesus. And that's a huge part of taking off our mask. We just take it off and we say, this is who I really am. You know, there's a popular greeting that you're probably familiar with in our culture when you say, how you doing? So if I said, how you doing? What do you say? How you doing? Fine, great. You might even say, great. 
You know, that's, that's like popular greeting, and that's fine, and we'll keep passing each other in the halls of River Ridge and, and say that, or in the halls of, a, you know, of your office or whatever. How you doing at the soccer field? Fine. How you doing? Good. Great. You know, and on we go. But, you know, here's what we need, though, is we need a group of people that we can ask that question, or they ask it of us, and the expected answer is not fine or great. Or we can say, how you doing? What's going on? And they could say, life is hard. Life sucks. My marriage is struggling. My kids are just running crazy. I'm so stressed out at work. We need those kinds of relationships where we can say, how you doing? And let down our guard and share what's really going on. What's going on? We need to be able to raise the flag and say, I'm struggling. And sadly, far too often, people go through tough stuff in life, you know, a divorce or a tough marriage or children going, you know, kind of going off the deep end, and they never raise the flag. They never come to a small group or, or, or call one of the pastors and say, hey, I'm, I'm struggling here. Our marriage is struggling. We need some help, you know, until after everything's kind of washed under the bridge and it's, it's too late. And we need to be able to come and share with the folks, hey, life is tough. I'm struggling. So what happens when people do that? when we share each other our struggles. And this message is about how do we get help, but also how do we give help. And so here's the second truth we take. It's we extend grace. We extend grace. You look at the passage with, this, with uh, Jesus, and what does Jesus do? He says to her, he, he affirms, he says, you don't, have, you don't have a husband, you've had five, and the man you're now living with is not your husband. And so, and then he kind of, back and he affirms, he says, and what you say is true. He extends grace to her. What he doesn't do is say, you know, your life is kind of messy, and I have a two-divorce limit here. Like, if you've been divorced more than twice, then you need to go find somebody else, because this club, it's only for two-divorced women, you know. Maybe three if you're really working hard on your third marriage, right, your fourth guy. You know, he doesn't say that. He extends grace to her. And the same is true. When people drop their mask, we've got to extend grace with the way that we respond, with the way that we look, and the way that we talk to them. We extend grace to them. And one of the ways that we extend grace, and this is a, a core value of our home groups, it's a kind of part of the commitment that we make one another, is that what's said in group stays in group. That we have a confidentiality about it. I'm in a men's group on Friday mornings, and, and we share about what's going on and the struggles and so forth, and we you know, admit our faults and our failures and our sins and discuss it and so forth. Um, but every now and then, one of the guys, and sometimes it's me, sometimes somebody else will say, hey, I want to tell you what's going on, but just so we all know, what says in group stays in group. And we all, we all believe that and we all live that, but sometimes we need that extra sort of, because I'm going to drop a bomb here. And somebody will say something, and we surround that person with grace. But it's about this comfort, this trust that comes by being in a group. Here's the third one point that we take from this passage. It's speak truth. Speak truth. So it's not just that we take off the mask. It's not just that we extend grace and say, hey, my life's a mess. And we go, man, I love you anyway, even though your life is a mess. And, and those things are both true. But we also speak truth to people. Because if you look at Jesus, again, what does he do when the woman drops her mask and shares the junk? He doesn't say, well, you know, you should probably just marry number six and then that probably won't work out and just marry number seven and marry number eight and just on and on. He doesn't say that. 
he speaks truth. He says, there is a life available to you that is better than what's going on now. That is so much better that you can have a healthy relationship with the God who is the God of spirit and truth and a relationship with me, the Messiah, and you can have that. And that's what he puts forward. He speaks that truth to her. And that's the truth that we need to speak to one another. It's not just we listen and people dump their junk and we say, oh, well, too bad, let me pray for you, pat you on the back, good luck with that. No, that we surround each other and we speak truth to one another. You know, as I was thinking about this this week and, and kind of the mask idea, I had this thought, and I hope I can convey this accurately, otherwise it will make no sense at all, but, you know, we project, we put on a mask, And what we're doing is we're projecting an image of ourselves that is better than what we want to be. But most of the time, the image that we're projecting is actually who we want to be, and that's a good thing. Not that we're projecting the image, but the image of who we want to be is a good thing, right? So let's take, for example, let's just use one simple example of marriage, right? So let's just say in your life, your marriage is struggling. You fight a lot with your husband or your wife. um, You don't have a lot of fun together. There's not a lot of romance in your marriage. There's a lot of conflict. You're not on the same page. It's just hard. Let's assume that that's sort of what it is. But what you do is you put on a mask. You know, you hold hands when you walk into church. You post some neat stuff on Facebook. And we put up, we project this image of what we want our marriage to look like. But we know it's not true. We know it's, it's a projected image, right? But here's the thing is, what we do in between has to do with the speaking truth, is that we want to move in our marriage. We don't just say, hey, my marriage is terrible, and people go, hey, we love you anyway. What we want to do is we want to take steps to have a healthier marriage. We want to take steps so that the image that we were projecting actually becomes more of a reality in our lives, where we take steps and we have more romance in our marriage. We take steps and we get better at conflict resolution. We take steps and we have more fun together. We take steps and we get better at communication because we're moving towards this idea of marriage that is real to what we want. And you can take that about almost anything that we project an image. The image that you're trying to project is actually where you want to be, and so we take steps to move in that direction. So I want to close uh, just with some very, very practical application. If you look in the seat back in front of you, you'll see a piece of paper that looks like this. On one side, it says ridge groups. On the other side, it says home groups. And these are, I don't know, there's probably about 20 or so groups that meet around rivers. There's actually more than this, but these are the ones that have space available in them. And what I want you to do, the application is very clear. Get in a group. Find some people to do life with. And you may go, I don't know what group to get in. There's a whole mess of them. You can do one of a couple things. One is Bruce Moore, uh, who was up here a few minutes ago. He will be in the lobby. There's a little sign that says Ridge Group Information. You can go find him. He can point you to a group. Um, We also find that sometimes people like to get in a new group for new people. And so it's a whole bunch of new people together. And so uh, those are boxed. If you look on here on a couple, both sides, there's some that have a box around them. Those are new groups for new people. And so if you're not in a group, you say, I want to be in a group with brand new people. Nobody's ever been in a group before. Everybody's new to getting in this group. Uh, Then you can sign up for one of those. You can actually sign up for those out in the lobby so we have an idea of what to expect. Uh, But it's this idea of getting in a group so that we can get the help that we need. 
I want to close um, with this note is one of the things that I find at River Church, and I've been around River Church since we began 15 years ago, and, and you know, over the last probably five or seven years, we've grown, and now we're kind of a big church. And people say, wow, the River Church, that's a big church. Um, but unfortunately, what people will sometimes say is, and they'll come for you know, a year, and then they'll say, you know, River Ridge Church was just too big, and so we decided to go somewhere else, or we stopped going to church. Or someone will say, you know, I like the sermon, I like the worship, my kids kind of like the kid stuff and the student stuff, but it just, River Ridge just wasn't friendly, right? And we'll get that sometimes that people will say that. And, and I want to speak to that because River Ridge Church is not just what we see in this room. River Ridge Church is a whole lot more than that. And if the only part of River Church that you're kind of doing or a part of is here, then you're missing a big part of it. That if you get involved in a group, then this church will be friendly because you'll see people you know and you'll have conversations outside of this room. The church won't feel so big because you'll know people more intimately and you'll see them here. And I just want you to understand the value and importance of getting involved. And maybe it's even you say, I'm going to join a serving team as a step and meet some people that way. But it just, it breaks my heart when people say, this church is too big or this church isn't friendly. Because the fact is, we've got great folks. We've got really friendly folks. But it's hard when you just sit shoulder to shoulder with people and that's all that you do. But when you take a step of involvement, then you begin to form these relationships. And then the bigger church feel small. And then we take off our masks, which I lost. We take off our masks and people know us for who we really are. And that's where help begins. And that's where life change happens. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for this um, just story of this woman and the healing that she found because the mask came off. And God, I pray that we would take off our masks and we would find some people that we're sharing that we can share who we really are and what life is about. God, for those folks here who are not in a group, give them the courage to get in a group, to take a step, to rearrange the schedule in order to be a part of a community group, Lord. God, I pray also a blessing upon the leaders. Uh, just help those of us that lead groups to form communities where masks can come off. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.